0: open outspoken it's ophthalmology off the grid an honest look at controversial topics in the field i'm gary words for ophthalmologists numbers hold a lot of weight we rely heavily on measurements to understand our patients conditions and inform our surgical decision making pre intra and post-operatively however as we all know there's always room for error Even the most sophisticated calculation methods have their limitations. Well, hopefully things are about to change. One individual who has made tremendous strides in eliminating the guesswork and overcoming these limitations is Dr. Warren Hill. I touched base with Warren to learn more about his efforts to develop a new self-validating method for IOL power selection. Listen in as he takes us through this project and shares how six years of research and a strong collaboration brought this exciting tool to ophthalmologists.
1: Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon.
0: Today, I have Dr. Warren Hill with me, and I'm just so honored and thrilled that uh, Warren could spend a little bit of time talking about uh, not only his current project, the Hill RBF, which is something we're all very, very excited about, but also just a little bit of background on uh, his experiences with biometry, uh, maybe starting from the beginning. And um, all the way through developing the website and and then walking us through the uh, project he's been on most recently with the Hill RBF. Before we even get started, I just want to say thank you for all you've done for ophthalmology, um, all you've done for me over the years. We've had a few little cases that you've helped me out on, and I've appreciated that. And so, Warren, I just want to say thank you, and maybe as, as we get started here, you could just give us a little bit of a historical perspective on biometry, and what what piqued your interest in biometry when you started your practice, or maybe if it wasn't even at the beginning, when did you start thinking that biometry was fun, and when did you find out that this was your passion?
1: Well, thanks, Gary, for the kind words, and it's uh, it's a delight to, to be here with you, and share some of the thoughts that we're going to go through in the next uh, few minutes. Well, this is coming up on my 32nd year in practice, and when I first began, um, what I did was see patients for other physicians, and in in my area in the mid-1980s, there were a lot of very large clinics, and when physicians would have a problem, sometimes patients would drift over to my office, and I would fix the problem and then send the patient back, and often that involved a lens exchange, a corneal transplant, perhaps, a uh, me Back then, uh, general ophthalmologists did a lot more uh, of different types of procedures than what we do right now. And what I found was probably 8 or 10 to 1, the most common problem I saw was the wrong power IRL. And this became you know, like a mission for me because more and more patients were being sent to me to help figure this out. And in the late 80s, uh, I kind of made friends with Jack Holliday and he was very gracious and very kind and, and helped me to understand things and sort of I grew up around the whole field of IOL calculations, mostly out of necessity. Um, and eventually physicians would send me patients before the refractive supplies came and and I guess uh, you, you get good at what you do a lot of and over time that sort of became one of the centers of my practice. To this day I'm still mostly doing referral anterior segment surgery and with an uh, emphasis on. Um, eye well power calculations for the physicians. The website that i that I that you refer to was also born out of necessity. We used to get a lot of questions about how do I handle an eye with a sapphilo or how the silicone oil, or what do we do in the setting of extreme axial myopia? And um, the right hand column of that website kind of became a repository of answers to questions that I used to get very frequently, and it was more out of a survival. Instinct and anything else just to refer people of that so we didn't have to go through the same answer, you know, time and time again. And and over the years that website just kind of evolved into its its present form.
0: Well, so it's interesting. It sounds like you basically discovered an unmet need in the marketplace and in your area you decided to be willing to fall on the sword, so to speak to do the really tough things. And that, because your willingness to do that and your willingness to be an educator and mentor has really opened up doors, probably, I hope I'm not speaking out of term, but probably opened doors that you maybe never dreamed of when you were starting your practice and taking care of all these train wrecks or patients who maybe no one else wanted to take care of. Is that a fair, a fair assessment?
1: Actually, yeah, there's a little bit more to it than that. My father, who was a physician, always used to say "Is the the best way to learn something is to try and teach it to someone else. So in the in the 90s, I used to go to meetings, and I still do, and um, would give um, lectures on eye-well calculations. And um, that's really when the light came on for me about how broad the problem was, how little we had to work with at the time, and how much this was needed. And again, my my knowledge evolved really through the questions of those people I was looking to help and teach about courses I was teaching and um, with more and more exposure and more and more interest, making more and more knowledge. And uh, one of the interesting things about the website is that um, people will, will send me cases and say, gee, what do I do with this or so why did this happen? And I would work through the problem with them and come up with the right answer. And what they would get is the right answer, I hope, of course. And then what I would get is knowledge. And with every single one of these that came down the, down the pipe, um, I gained more and more experience. And um, through that experience of helping other people um, evolved what I know today.
0: Well, one of the things that, you know, this is an area that I'm very interested in. I ha- you know, as I have my own um, ideas about effective lens position and maybe a- an IOL that someday will help solve that. But I kind of had an epiphany moment after um, I think we spoke one time, and you know, what, you know, attending some lectures, doing some reading, and, and really just sort of thinking about biometry. I thought, you know, it all comes down to effective lens position. And all these formulas essentially are just taking various bits of data, whether that's um, just the axial length, or the axial length and the Ks, or axial length, Ks, anterior chamber depth, you know, and, and the list goes on and on. But essentially, I kind of boiled it down in my mind that all these formulas are doing is they're taking different bits of data, weighting those differently based on the population they use to derive their formula, and coming up with where the best guess for the effective lens position will be. And when I had that that epiphany, I just thought, is that really true? Is that what we're really doing? And, uh, you know, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, is that a fair assessment on a 50,000-foot level of what the, what the formulas have done for us in the past?
1: Well, actually, let's go up to 100,000 feet, and uh, this is going to be a surprise to most people, but the formulas we're using right now uh, really came from uh, Dr. Gauss in 1840, and keep in mind that's the first half of the 19th century. And what Dr. Gauss uh, published was a basic formula, object vergence plus lens vergence equals image vergence. And if we fast forward to you know, current, current times, if you look at any modern formula, if we, if we have a formula that solves for the eye well power, that's lens vergence equals image vergence minus object vergence, it's still Dr. Gauss's formula. And probably about 30 or maybe more percent of the accuracy of that of that formula is the effective lens position. And as you know, the effective lens position can only be estimated. It can't be calculated. So a large part of all theoretical formulas is based on something that can only be estimated. And that's kind of the blind spot. And if the eye didn't read the textbook, if the eye didn't line up with the assumptions of the formula, that's the refractive surprise you get. And it might be a surprise to people that um, if if you look at A series of patients, and I've looked at about 260,000 implantations as part of the Heggis Fondo Optimization Database, the vast majority, greater than 90% of surgeons, are at about 78% within half a diopter. Said differently, that's 22% who are outside the half diopter accuracy. Only 6% of surgeons are at 84% or better, and less than 1% of surgeons are at 92%. So... You know, using you know older formulas like third, uh, third generation two variable formulas, these are the kind of accuracy results you're going to get and we really need to move up to theoretical formulas from this century is the kind of a joke we like to make that do a much better job with the effective lens position and those formulas would be like um, Olson's formula, Thomas Olson's C C. Formula. Right. And then Grand Barrett's universal two formula. These are really two diff to ophthalmology. And they've taken theoretical formulas way, way past what we've had in the past. Um, but as long as you have a the theoretical formula, you're still tied to the effective lens position.
0: Right. And so it sounds like you found another unmet need in terms of figuring out how do we move the ball beyond the 78% plus or minus a half diopter for the vast majority of physicians? And how do we get a formula that's going to perform well, not just for the eyes that read the textbook and the eyes that are the quote unquote normal shape and size eyes. And it sounds like the Hill RBF is maybe our, our next best um, advancement in ophthalmology to get it right for Eyes across the spectrum. So, walk me through a little bit about your um, this, the genesis of this idea, and what what made you think of it, and how you decided to tackle such a huge project. Sure. Well, first let's
1: let's kind of start at the beginning. This this all began about seven years ago, and uh, it began with um, working with uh, MathWorks with uh, Pete Maloney, who's an engineer at, at MathWorks. And then it's evolved into a, a project of 25 surgeon beta testers in 14 countries. So this isn't just my work, of course. This is a, very much a team effort. Right now, our core investigators are Doug Koch and Lee Wong at uh, Baylor University. These two need no introduction to, uh, to anybody in ophthalmology. Um, a, a young uh, ophthalmologist near Tel Aviv, Israel, his name is Adi Abulafia, someone you're going to be hearing a lot about in the future. This uh, young man has a, has a gift for analysis. And then David Goldblum, who's a professor of ophthalmology at the University of Basel in Switzerland. And then our beta testers are, are in Europe, the Middle East, Africa, North and South America, Asia, India, and Australia. So we have a really wide range of people involved in this project. So the idea was to get rid of the effective lens position using a completely different mathematical model. And that mathematical model is, uh, is an engineering-based statistical model of which there are many different forms. There are things like Gaussian process methods, stochastic process methods, Kriging polynomial models. And what we decide what we settled on is something called a radial basis function. And a radial basis function is like a form of artificial uh, neural network, except that it, it handles the data a little bit differently and we use it for pattern recognition. So the way a theoretical formula works is you have the measurement points that kind of go into a black box, which is usually a a regression-derived algorithm, and then out the other end comes an IOL power for a given spherical equivalent. Well, what this does is we use um, what are called pairwise boundary model pairs, like axial length versus anterior chamber depth, anterior chamber depth versus central corneal power, central corneal power versus spherical equivalent. We create what are called the boundary model around each one of these. In other words, data points within these theoretical boundary models are considered valid. And if a data point falls outside of it, it's invalid. And we can actually flag this for the user to tell them if the lens power that we're going to estimate is at a certain accuracy level. So instead of um, applying measurement, preoperative measurement data points to a Russian derived algorithm, Instead, we look at it as a pattern and apply a boundary model for internal validation. And right now, our boundary model is at about 90% accuracy within half a diameter So rather than just running regression line across, you know, axial length versus anterior chamber depth, we actually are able to keep track of all the data points simultaneously. So it's a completely different mathematical model. And in engineering circles, this is completely normal. I mean, this is... This is is just like a standard
0: tool. It's just it's something new to ophthalmology, and it sounds like this is something that um, is already well established. But also sounds like something that may learn and advance and get better as time goes on with more and more data points. Is that correct?
1: Right. You bring up really an excellent point, and is that these engineering based statistical models are big data exercises. So right now we're working with about three thousand four hundred and forty five points to create our pairwise boundary models and do our our, um, pattern recognition. Um, This last week, we just finished adding about 10,000 cases uh, to the database for this, including eye wells down as far as minus uh, five diopters. And we specifically concentrated on implantations of eye wells for very, very high hyperopes, which is always one of the more problematic types of cases that we do. So as the size of the database increases, the depth and breadth of the boundary models increases, and the overall accuracy gets better and better and better. So we're going to be at about 10 or 12,000 cases um, in the next next version, which I hope to have finished by the end of the year. And then at the end of next year, we may be up to 30,000 cases. And eventually our hope is that with this model and the input from physicians around the world who volunteered to help us, we may not ever have to worry about the spherical equivalent again. Just like when we went from ultrasound to optical biometry, you remember what an epiphany that was for all of us. You know, going from an Applanation A scan to the IOL Master basically took the axial length completely out of the picture. We just didn't have to worry about it. Our goal with this project is to make the spherical equivalent mostly a non-issue, and then move on to other things.
0: I guess one question I would have is you know in, in this this requires you to take off your developer scientist hat and and put on the hat of a a physician who's you know busy in practice. you know we all are creatures of habit, and that can be uh, protective in some ways, prevents us from doing things that are that may not be well established, but it can also be detrimental in some ways. Where, as surgeons, maybe we're reticent to change from that good old holiday one formula we've been using for 10 years or longer. So in a, in a busy practice, you get this data that says, all right, we've got we've got a new formula, everyone stop the presses, you know, change from what you've been doing and move over to this. What what do you advise? Um, what do you advise fellow surgeons who are this whole concept may be a little bit new? and maybe the security blanket of that formula that is, is maybe not perfect, but they're at least used to the variability, how do you, how do you counsel them to take the plunge and, and feel safe to move over to something that's a new model?
1: Gary, this is really an excellent observation. Uh, let's, let's backtrack a little bit to the 1960s. There was, a, there was a book that I read back then by a man named uh, Everett Rogers called The Diffusion of Innovations. And if you don't know the book and if you haven't read it or been familiar with uh, his work, you're certainly familiar with the terminology because we use it every day. Yeah, um, when, I'm, when I'm very familiar, just, I just, love, just, love it. Or you've, so you know about the book, The Diffusion of Innovations. So what he said was that there are, there are basically five groups um, and it's distributed like a, like a bell curve. About 34% of any one group that's exposed to a technology is termed the early majority. And these are people that try something only after somebody tries it first. And I think that's probably what you're referring to. Another 34% are the late majority. And these are people that kind of border on cynical or looking for a lot of control perhaps, uh, administrative types that oversee uh, health plans. There's another 16% that are kind of like the laggards, people who are, uh, will only change technologies if it's absolutely forced on us. And then there's 13.5% of people who are the early adapters. And these are people who believe in it and do it for themselves, regardless of what anybody tells us. There's a very, very small group of the innovators, the Graham Barretts, the Doug Cokes, the Thomas Olsons of the world, that give us new technology. Now, to the left of this curve, all of these people are interested in enhancing outcomes. To the right of the curve, they're interested in maintaining familiarity. And a a lot of ophthalmologists are in that last group of maintaining familiarity. And where I'm going with this is when we first came out with this and I put up the online calculator, um, I wasn't sure that ophthalmologists would warm up to this until a couple of years. We had 9,000 calculations on the calculator the first five days. And in a 17-week period, we had about 38,000 calculations. So what's happened is that not only is this an unmet need, But I think ophthalmologists, as they become more and more interested in adaptive technology, are more willing to try new things than they were perhaps in years in my generation, uh, years ago. So the acceptance of this has been beyond anything I could have ever imagined. So
0: maybe your observation would be that the curve has actually shifted to the left, where maybe there's a few more early adapters than you had anticipated.
1: Yeah, judging by the uh, traffic that we're now getting on the website and the sales of the Lensstar, which is where this, this formula now resides, the sales of the Lensstar have just gone through the ceiling, um, since we put this on it. And this is really what's driving that in, in, in some part. So uh, I think it's two things. One is the, the newer generation of ophthalmologists are not quite as concerned about technology as you and I may have been early in our careers. And, um, they're accepting. You know they're accepting of trying something new, and uh, the the use has just been amazing, which is great because the website is going to be uh, used for what's what's known in the business as crowdsourcing, where as each calculation is put on that, it's captured and then the user gets an email three months later asking for results, and uh, we're able to build up the database from that. So this is this is becoming actually a worldwide collaborative effort a lot quicker than anybody could have ever imagined.
0: Well, and it, but it starts with leadership and it starts with someone who has a vision and sees an unmet need and is willing to put in the blood, sweat and tears and put their name behind something that at the beginning you don't know if it's going to work, if it's going to be accepted or, you know, frankly, if you're going to be laughed at if this if this fails. Um, not that we would ever laugh at you, but I'm saying in general when you innovate, it's it's, a, it's an exercise that has to be fueled by passion. Um, and then it, but it benefits it benefits the field. It benefits patience. And you know this is just such an area that we all recognize we could do better and to be honest, you know that's why I'm doing what I'm doing with trying to develop a lens that could maybe help us predict even better based on some different structural um, elements with, within my lens. So I'm, I'm kind of um, on the same side of this situation trying to innovate. Um, but when I go to conferences and I go to trade shows and you know we walk around and listen to lectures and... You know, I'm trying to think, You know, do, do I need another box? Do I need a better topographer? Do I need dual shine flux? Do I need uh, intraoperative aberrometry? What is the magic box that I need? And what's, what's kind of interesting is it maybe isn't the data that we have. Maybe it's the way we're using the data. And it seems like you have approached this um, in a lateral manner and have said, yeah, it's not necessarily the data. We have ways to measure the eye. It's how are we applying it to the eye that's going to make the biggest difference. Is that a fair assessment?
1: Yeah. Well, actually, what, what, and to take this one step further, I think what we're seeing is really converging technologies. So the next step for ophthalmology that I think will be as big as an epiphany as where we went from applanation ultrasound to um, optical biometry will be being able to reach a 90% level for half-diopter accuracy for, for everyone. And we're seeing three technologies that are actually approaching that all at the same time. One is theoretical um, formulas. And Graham Barrett's Barrett Universal Two formula with really good measurements can, can actually do this. And his formula is just, it, it's an amazing theoretical formula. The other is interoperative aberometry. And one of the newer forms of intraoperative avarometry, the Holos device, has an algorithm that actually Graham Barrett wrote. And instead of doing the preoperative measurements to come up with the IOL power, it looks at an APHIC measurement and then adds power to an existing optical system using something called the RX formula that Graham developed. And that can be at 90%. And then now the RBF um, uh, method is moving us in that direction as well. And we did a, Mike Snyder, Steve Scopper and I did a prospective study at the early part of this year, and that's pretty much where we ended up for all cases. We ended up, uh, consecutive cases by three surgeons, we ended up at 91%. So what we're seeing, we're getting getting to that uh, place where we all want to be at least at this stage in ophthalmology. It's possible to get there by three different methods. And I, I see that as wonderful. Now it becomes a horse race. And uh, everybody's trying to you know, get a little bit better, a little bit better. And this, this is a very exciting time. And with your technology as well, you have the option of not only changing the IOL, if the spherical equivalent is not correct, but changing the type of IOL right. if the patient wants multifocal, if they want a torque, a drug delivery system. I mean, so the technologies are just blossoming in all kinds of different directions. And this is a really fun time to be an ophthalmologist.
0: So as, as we get sort of towards the, the uh, end of this conversation, one question I would have for you is, are we where you thought that we would be when you started your career? And maybe there's two parts to that question. What has surprised you? And, where, and is there anything that you thought that we'd already be at that we're not there yet? So maybe surprised in a positive direction and surprised in a not so positive or, or unmet need uh, direction?
1: Well, we'll start with the latter. Um, what still surprises me is that we as surgeons are judged by our patients and our peers by our refractive outcomes. No question, that's a fact undisputed. But yet so many surgeons hand over the eye well-power calculation part of their practice to technicians and in a completely unsupervised environment. And the old joke is automate and delegate. And uh, it, it seems a little bit of a paradox that you know we, we all now do wonderful surgery and you know, our cases look fantastic the next day, but yet we're using technology from the 1980s or 1990s as far as selecting an IOL power for the outcome. And none of us would, you know, drive a car from 1988, use a cell phone from 1991, or a telephone from 1993. And yet that's the technology that so many people are using. So that's a little bit of surprise to me. Now, on the good part, the good side, I'm encouraged to see people making the move to um, – this artificial intelligence RBF method and also using Graham Barretts formula both of these are available online at no charge to anybody so there's no cost to to, to use something like this so I, I am I am excited about that and what another thing that excites me is the explosion of technology that we're going to be seeing in the next two years regarding preoperative measurements um, a lot of companies are moving to scrub source OCT there's a couple of You know, wonderful devices on the market right now. And I think everybody's going to move to that. And when we start measuring the cornea using swept source OCT, that second um, part of the equation with a lot of variability, which is the anterior cornea, that may go away as well. Right now, the the greatest variability in selecting an IOL power is the calculation method and the measurement of the cornea. And if we can take the calculation method to very high levels, and get rid of the, the, the noise from a reflective keratometry to swept source OCT, then I think it's a whole new ballgame. And like I can say, we may not have to worry about the spherical equivalent anymore. Now we can worry about the other things that we've, we haven't been concentrating on so much because we've been so worried about getting the power correct.
0: Well, Warren, I just, um, I, I agree with you. I think that those are, are both areas that uh, on one hand that we need to strive to improve and in other ways we're just so fortunate and lucky that we have great uh, physicians and also partners in industry that are coming up with technologies that are going to continue to make us better and make us heroes in the eyes of our patients. So um, beyond that, I just want to say a hearty thank you personally. Um, there have been a number of times when I've I've had significant questions about patients that either required an exchange or um, other head scratchers. And as busy as you are taking care of the world's um, IOL conundrums, you've always made time for me personally. Um, And that goes back to when I was first out of residency and and continues to this day. So I just want to say a hearty thank you from all of the ophthalmologists, you know, worldwide for what you've done. And also a very personal thank you for Um, being a resource that I know I can count on and trust. So um, thank you so much, Warren, for everything you've done for us.
1: Well, I appreciate the kind words, and it was
0: wonderful to spend some time with you this evening. Absolutely. Well, thanks again, Warren, and you're always welcome to come back if you ever have anything you'd like to share. So thank you very much. For more on the Hill RBF Calculator, visit rbfcalculator.com. This has been Ophthalmology Off The Grid. Stay up to date on all of our episodes by subscribing. And if you've got an idea, comment, or opinion you'd like to share, please leave us a review. This is Dr. Gary Wirtz. Thanks for tuning in.
1: Ophthalmology Off The Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon.